following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Daniel 7, at verse 15, Daniel has described this vision he had of these four beasts rising out of the sea, this vision of the throne room of God, the Ancient of Days, and one like a son of man. We've seen all of that in the first half of Daniel 7, and now we read the second half, the interpretation of the vision. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth. And trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Recently, I read one of the reports in 
Open Doors International, an organization that reports on persecution of the church around the world. And this is what it said about recent developments, one of the stories. It said, in the lead-up to Easter, United Kingdom Prime Minister David Cameron committed his government to fighting the persecution of Christians abroad, saying no group is under more pressure for its faith. Prime Minister Cameron is not alone in making the claim. In February, U.S. Congressman Chris Smith said the global persecution of Christians has gone from bad to worse. In November 2012, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said Christianity is the most persecuted religion worldwide. In January 2011, former Lebanese President Amin Gamaliel said, What is happening to Christians is a genocide. Christian Solidarity International issued a genocide alert for Christians and other religious minorities in Egypt and Syria last May. And on March 12th, recently, the day before David Cameron's announcement, Lord David Alton of the United Kingdom House of Lords spoke at a Lenten vigil dedicated to the suffering church in Syria and the Middle East. During the service, he highlighted the systematic killing and outright persecution of Christians, which he said, quote, takes place with hardly a murmur of protest. The article goes on to talk more about this, but it just gives you a sense of the state of the persecution of the church that is taking place even in our day. And certainly, the vision of Daniel 7 is applicable to the church, to the body of Christ in our day. The vision that Daniel has is a terrifying one. We see that his response, both in verse 15 and in verse 28, is that he's anxious in the spirit within him. There's this sense of dread It alarms him, but ultimately, the vision is one that encourages Christians to persevere, no matter what may come. We would like to look at that theme under three main headings. The first is this, the opposition of Antichrist will always be part of the church's experience in this age. The opposition of Antichrist will always be part of the church's experience in this age. We see this angel, this apparent angel, who has been part of the scene with the Ancient of Days, and Daniel asks him to interpret and tell him more about what certain parts of this vision mean, and he's especially interested in the fourth beast and these horns and this one particular horn. And the angel gives a more in-depth interpretation and shows the terrible dread of this fourth beast, that it shall devour the whole earth, it shall trample it down and break it to pieces. And he describes these horns in this one particular horn. We saw last week that the four beasts who rise out of the sea in this vision represent four kingdoms, most likely, but also stand for the kingdoms of this world that oppose Christ throughout the ages. The kingdoms of that time were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. So Rome is the fourth beast 
But also, it stands for something wider than Rome itself, the intensification of persecuting power and evil in the world. Rome had great persecuting power. And so, it's not that it stands for Rome in and of itself, although that may be a partial fulfillment of this, but there's also this wider fulfillment of intense persecuting power. The entire vision symbolizes repeated manifestations of the beastly, oppressing, and persecuting power of the state when the state goes wrong, whether it's ancient Rome or present-day North Korea. All such evil manifestations of the oppressing power of the state are expressions of Antichrist. Now, we want to talk a little bit more about the horns and then talk about Antichrist because it's important that we understand that. There are ten horns. Are these to symbolize something about the Roman Empire? And many people have made attempts to... um, make one-to-one correspondence with these ten horns and ten emperors of Rome. The problem is there are actually more than ten, but there are schemes and ways to get it to fit that case. Or are, are these to be future kind of reincarnations of the power of Rome of separate states and governments that we are to see? That's possible, but it's not necessary. It is very likely that these ten horns symbolize completeness. Ten symbolizing completeness in one sense. Again, numbers in apocalyptic literature often being taken merely symbolic. And so, the ten horns symbolizing, they stand for the continuation of that spirit which was so powerfully expressed in the Roman Empire. That persecuting, oppressing power in which the saints of God are oppressed And so the ten horns carry that same spirit forward. A horn typically symbolized power in the Old Testament. An animal's horn was a powerful thing. You didn't want to get uh, gored by an animal's horn. Um, And in the Bible, that sense of horn, meaning power, can both have a negative connotation or a positive connotation. There are many uses of the word you have lifted up my horn in that sense, that are positive, uh, symbolizing and standing for strength given by God and submitted to God and to his rule. But here, clearly, horn is used in a negative sense, a horn lifted up in pride and in self-sufficiency and in arrogance, a rebellious strength that refuses to be subject to God. And so these ten horns do not need to be interpreted as an actual literal restoration of Rome. But they can symbolize more generally such beastly power in rebellion against God. You can read lots of different speculations, and in the Reformation time, there were different interpretations of it. this. But um, most are agreed that the little horn which arises and defeats three smaller horns, which again are taken to be symbolic that he consolidates power in that sense, that the little horn symbolizes Antichrist. And it's important for us to stop and reflect on that. In fact, the angel's emphasis in our text 
is interestingly not on the exact identity of the little horn. You don't see him tell us something specific about who that little horn is. But the angel's emphasis is on the little horn and his persecution of the saints and his ultimate judgment by God and the triumph of the saints. We see that especially in verse 21 where it says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. This horn made war against the saints. And this is elaborated on down in verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. In other words, he will blaspheme. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall persecute the church, in other words. And he shall think to change the times and the law. What is that referring to? It must mean that he seeks somehow to to subvert the law and transform even society itself into something set against God. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? This has always been the spirit of Antichrist, blaspheming God, uh, subverting even the very law of God to make it something other and to persecute the church. It's a picture of blatant and sinister opposition to God and to his rule of the world. Antichrist is a powerful opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And we see in the New Testament that this theme is continued. There are many New Testament references to Antichrist as well. We will not look at all of them, but just to see one or two of them in 1 John chapter 2, we read this, children, it is the last hour. Interesting, John says, he doesn't say it's the last day or the last time. He says it's the last hour, this sense of urgency. Even 2,000 years ago, the apostle John was saying it's the last hour. In fact, this whole time between the first and the second coming of Christ is the last day or the last hour even. It could be described that way. And he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So it's not like as if we need to interpret this and say, this means only the final Antichrist who comes at the end of time and nothing up till that point. Or we don't have to take that away and say it doesn't mean that, but we can say like the Apostle John is saying, many Antichrists have come. The spirit of Antichrist is always present. It has many manifestations throughout history until that final full manifestation of Antichrist. Same with 1 John 4, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Just one more text from 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John is saying false prophets. Anything that doesn't confess that Jesus is the Christ, it's all antichrist. And you heard it was coming, it's now already in the world. Or we can take, for example, 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which we won't read all of it, but there's a, an in-depth description, and we had a sermon on this not long ago. But uh, there, the Apostle Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of Christ, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In Revelation chapter 13, we won't read all of that, but we see some of these similar elements that are in Daniel. We see Revelation 13 begin with the, the Apostle John's vision of a beast arising out of the sea. And he has ten horns, but then there are new elements mixed in and new descriptions and new images mixed in. And then we find that he's oppressing the saints, and the saints are called to endure. In fact, in verse 7, it says, um, also it was allowed, this beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And it goes on to talk about this. And it concludes with this phrase, here is a call for the endurance, endurance and faith of the saints. This call to endure. And so we find that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. It's been here, Daniel's time, in the time of Christ, in the early church. In fact, I would just reflect on one example of this. I looked up this week. Wouldn't you think that if spirit of Antichrist is, you know, ever not around, wouldn't it be during a time of great revival? And uh, the answer to that question is no, actually not. In fact, uh, when you read about the first great awakening and you think about thousands and tens of thousands in England and in the United States coming to know Christ, you think, well, boy, society must be getting just really smooth for the saints, and they must have just a really easy time of it. And, but what we find is the very opposite. Um, there are accounts of the Great Awakening in England that when the believers who were early Methodists, both Calvinist and Wesleyan Methodists, gathering together to hear the gospel preached, that there would be mobs who would break in upon them and who would beat people up, who would strip individuals, who would drag them through mud, who would throw them in creeks and ponds. And there's one account of this that Whitfield describes. He, um, he is in England, and it's near Exeter, and he goes to help out a pastor by the name of Adams, and he, he reports this. He says, no sooner had I entered the town than I heard the signals, such as the blowing of horns and the ringing of bells for gathering the mob. My soul was kept quite easy. I preached on a large grass area from these words, and he talks about the text he preached on. And he, fish, he finished the sermon and pronounced the blessing, just as the ringleader of the mob broke in upon us, and they start to shout at them and so forth, and um, it turns out that they drag some of them away. One receives a deep wound in his leg. Another is thrown into a pond. And I, th I think the description ends in an interesting way. Hearing that two or three clergymen were in town, 
this is Anglican clergyman, one of whom was a, a justice of the peace, I went to them, but instead of redressing, in other words, instead of redressing the harms that were being done, they laid the cause of all the grievances at my door. But by the help of God, I shall still persist in preaching and in encourage those who I believe are truly led by the Holy Ghost. This is just one example, and it happened over and over again, of the authorities in England looking the other way as the gospel was being preached. And really, the authorities of local communities and towns allowing mob violence to gospel preachers who were seeking to make Christ known. And my point in this illustration is this. Does it surprise us that we see that? Even in the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, does it surprise us that we see the spirit of Antichrist in places all around the world that we read about, but even in the United States, maybe in less violent ways many times, but it's still there. The spirit of Antichrist always opposes the kingdom of Christ, and we should not be surprised by it. Our second point is this. For his people's sake, God sets a limit on evil. For his people's sake, God sets a limit on evil. Notice how, as the angel describes and interprets this vision of the beast and the ten horns and the one particular horn and the Antichrist and what he does to the saints, at the end of verse 25, he says this, And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. And they, the saints, shall be given into the hand, like into the power of this little horn, this Antichrist, for this period of time. And it's described a time, times, and half a time. Now, again, what are we to do with numbers in apocalyptic literature? Daniel, Revelation, it's not necessary that this refers to literally three and a half years. We aren't even told that the time, the word time, means year. We looked at this in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar experienced his, his eating grass like an animal for seven times. And we don't know if that was seven years or seven months or if that's just symbolic of a complete period of time. We're not sure of that. The same thing goes for this. We don't know if this is referring to something like three and a half years at the very end of time before the Lord returns. It could refer to that. But there's something more important and more overarching being taught by this. Notice how the tense of the verb is passive tense. They shall be given into his hand. When it's described that way, it's talking about Ultimately, God being over what is happening here. God is the one who allows his saints to be given into the hand of Antichrist for this period of time. And most likely, what this time, times, and half a time symbolizes is one half of seven. Seven is seven times. This is three and a half times. So it signifies something being cut short. The principle is this, God sets a limit on evil for the sake of his saints. We see that in other 
places as well. For example, in Matthew 24, when Jesus gives his Olivet Discourse, as it's called, which is about the signs of the end of the age, but it's hard to know how much of this was fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and how much of it applies to the very end of time. But there... It's talking about the abomination of desolation and people needing to flee. And it says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Now that may be referring to the tribulation at the very end of time, but I take the view that it's referring to the period of time when Rome surrounded Jerusalem and actually the Roman general and armies withdrew for a time and the Christians fled to the small city of Pella. And then Rome again surrounded Jerusalem and besieged it. But even that siege was cut short in a sense, if you read the history of that. The same kind of thing is is said in Mark 13. Most likely, the principle that we find throughout Scripture that's symbolized here and elsewhere is that God is absolutely sovereign over all evil oppression of the saints that takes place. In this present evil age, God often allows his saints to be wickedly persecuted by the spirit of Antichrist in whatever form it takes, but God wisely limits all such evil oppression according to his own holy purpose and will. That's a great mystery for us, isn't it? We hear that idea of something being cut short. And we look at the newspapers around us, and we look at history, and we view what has at times and continues to be awful, horrendous persecution of the church. And we look at that and we say, how is that cutting anything short? So it is really a step of faith. It's really a view of faith that we can say, God is on the throne even when evil seems to be triumphing completely. God is still accomplishing all his holy will, even even when I, or when the church, with our limited understanding and wisdom, when we are unable to trace out his plan. That should not surprise us that this is the constant experience of the saints. God tells us he cuts short the power of evil over his people, but we don't understand exactly how he does that. Take as an example the church in Iraq in our day. Maybe some of you read the article in World this week about Iraq and the church there. Before 2003, there were about 1.2 million Christians living in Iraq, and now Possibly there are as few as 200,000 Christians left. Most of them have fled Iraq. And some Christian leaders in Iraq have said, to quote them, it is only a matter of time until there are no more Christians left in Iraq. Now that's a prediction. We don't know whether that's going to come true or not. More broadly in the Middle East, in the year 2000, in in the region of the Middle East, Christians made up about 26% of the population of the Middle East. Now they make up less than 10% because of what's been going on there. 
World Magazine had this article on St. George's Church, an Anglican church at Baghdad. And the attendance there has gone from 800 at its height to 300 now, or even less a lot of the time. And most of them have moved overseas or to northern parts of Iraq. And no one is in the church there is untouched by the awful sorrows due to war and the ongoing violence that's taking place there, including murder that goes on, kidnappings, death threats, not being able to walk on the street, all these kinds of things. Churches like this church has to have a giant 12-foot blast wall in front of it. Just think what we would feel like if we couldn't have you know, an open view of Oregon Pike or anything, but we had to have blast walls built all around the building of our church. One young man who works as a driver for the church watched many of his friends die on the streets of Baghdad, and then he started receiving death threats himself. And so one night he escaped north in the trunk of his uncle's car. But apparently now he's back. He he was gone for four years, and then he came back. He's part of the church there. I mentioned that article just to give us a sense that we look at that and think, what is going on? I thought the church was supposed to be advancing throughout the world. I thought the gates of hell could not prevail against the church, but that doesn't mean that there are not temporary setbacks. We don't understand what God is doing many times. We should not be surprised that we cannot understand how the purposes of God are unfolding in the world. We cannot even understand how God's purposes are unfolding in our own lives, let alone this whole complex world. I like the way in Revelation 6, we have this picture of the saints, those who have laid down their lives, and they're martyrs, and they are um, seeking to cry out to God about what's happened. And in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, we see their cry, and It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So even now, they're glorified, waiting for that final resurrection day. And it says, they were each given a white robe and told, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're crying out for justice. They, they want God, the judge of all, to, to bring about justice. How long, O oh Lord? And they're told to wait. Isn't that what God often says to his church? Wait until the appropriate time. Or the example from Acts chapter 12. I always think it's interesting how Luke puts in Acts chapter 12 the account of James, the brother of John, being killed by Herod. And right there as well, he puts the account of Peter being miraculously freed and not killed. James killed, Peter freed. And interesting, the, the chapter concludes with Herod who clearly represents Antichrist in this oppressing power of the state, who gave a speech and was given praise, told he was like a god. It says he did not give glory to God. 
and the worms ate him. He died. Clearly, the intent is he was struck by God. It shows us the mystery. Why would God let Peter live and miraculously save him to use him more? And we would all think, why wouldn't you do that all the time, Lord? Why does James die? Why is he martyred? And it shows us we don't understand these things. God has set a limit on evil. We may not see it or understand it, but we can and must take it by faith. And our final point is this. The church must, in light of all this, keep in view the final triumph of Christ. The church must keep in view the final triumph of Christ. As the angel interprets this to Daniel, and he talks about the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The little horn is not going to continue. His dominion is going to be taken away from him. He's going to be destroyed. And verse 27 again brings us that concluding vision of the final state and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This vision starts to show us the cosmic war that will unfold as the visions of Daniel unfold. It's showing the cosmic battle that's taking place behind the scene as history unfolds. And the New Testament finally rips this veil away and shows us the spiritual warfare in its full sense. And we are told in Colossians 2, That on the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle over them and triumphing over them by the cross. Wouldn't Daniel have longed to look ahead and see that great victory of Jesus Christ on the cross? And so in Ephesians 6, we are not surprised to be told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And in Revelation, we see this amazing description of Jesus Christ coming on the clouds for the final deliverance of those who trust in him. And again, we think, what would Daniel have thought to understand that this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ? And the Apostle John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war this theme of the divine warrior. You can read it in Revelation 19. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords. Daniel 7 is more fully interpreted by the New Testament and by Revelation with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And now, for us, we make application of that. And we think, what about the way God cuts short or doesn't seem always to cut short the sufferings of this life? And we are reminded of our great conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. As one writer put it, for us, the time of our trials is cut short because for Jesus Christ, the time of his trial on the cross was not cut short. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, why is, in a sense, why are the sufferings that we experience cut short? Because Jesus' sufferings were not cut short. 
On the contrary, Jesus Christ felt and experienced the full measure of the agonies of hell for his people, all distilled into six hours on the cross of horrendous suffering. And the result of his sacrifice is that now for every believer, whatever we face in this life, even death itself, it has lost its sting and it's lost his power. No matter how much power Antichrist might hold over our bodies, Antichrist cannot touch our souls. If Jesus Christ has saved me by his blood, then in a sense we can say, let the evil world do its very worst. For even the very worst it can do in this, is in this sense cut short. Doesn't Paul say that at the end of Romans 8? What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has justified? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or danger or famine or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Ultimately, the world has no power to hurt me. And I know that after the world has done its worst, God will welcome me into his very best. Christian, we need to keep the long term in view. Mother's Day is a great day. I always think we should celebrate and highlight that as we do. And you think about the mother's job. There's no more unheralded role in this world than mom. She doesn't get any respect on our society anymore. Nobody pays her anything for what she does. It doesn't seem she works night and day. There was a recent news story about a company that put an advertiser out, advertisement out for a mother and didn't tell that was what they were advertising for. They described all these tasks this person had to do. And then at the end of it said, and by the way, this job doesn't pay anything. <laughs> and they got people calling them and saying, What? But a mother, for her to continue her job, week after week, month after month, year after year, raising young ones and pouring her life into them, has to keep in view the long term. Because in another sense, there's no more powerful person in the world than a mother in terms of the formation of young hearts and minds. What a wonderful thing that is. The Christian, likewise, has to keep in view the long term that... Yes, there may be great tribulations and trials in this world due to Antichrist, due to the spirit of evil that is in this world, but Jesus Christ's triumph is certain and sure. And we live in light of that expectation, bringing it near by faith. I like this illustration of Samuel Rutherford, the 17th century Scottish pastor who wrote that hymn about... um, in Emmanuel's land. As a young man, he was exiled by the church authority from his beloved parish of Anwath in southern Scotland for writing in defense of the doctrines of grace. And as an old man, when the monarchy in Scotland was 
reinstated under Charles II, he was charged with high treason for this book in which he had argued that even monarchs were subject to the law. So when the summons came, he responded from his deathbed with this quote, Tell them I have got a summons already before a superior judge and judiciatory, and I behoove to answer my first summons, and ere your day come, I will be where few kings and great folks come. What an answer. This is a man who put first things first and saw by faith the king of kings and the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, the day is indeed hastening when the sands of time will run out and the beasts will face their judgment, but for the saints, glory will dwell forever in Emmanuel's land. We thank you that it's because of the rock of ages that was cleft for us, the rock of ages that was broken for us, that we might be saved. Thank you that that no evil, that no antichrist, that no spirit of antichrist, that no beastly power can touch us or harm us eternally because we are abiding in and protected by that great rock of ages. We stand and we pray in his name.